everyone. I'm divorce attorney Kim Shashinsky, and this is Happily Even After. You can listen to me live every Thursday from 5 to 6 at 103.9 FM or online at linewsradio.com. Thank you all for tuning in, and Happy New Year. If you've listened to my show before, you know that it's my mission to keep divorcing couples out of the legal system and to help them restructure their family with dignity and privacy. Look, family's the cornerstone of every society, and I really believe that our society handles the issue of divorce in a polarizing manner that demonizes normal emotions and results in the unnecessary destruction of the family unit. I am passionate in my belief that if divorce is done right, it's entirely possible for everyone to move on and live happily, even after. My practice is located in Garden City and is completely focused on helping families avoid the pitfalls of divorce litigation by offering healthy and more positive process options. You can visit me at ADRLawNY.com or you can call me at 516-308-2922. So divorce is a very traumatic event, but when it involves physical, sexual, emotional, or financial abuse, the healing process can be particularly difficult. We're going to be joined today by Shari Botwin, who is a licensed clinical social worker, and she specializes in helping people overcome trauma. But before I introduce my guest, I always spend the first few minutes of the show telling you about the options that you have if you're considering divorce and want to handle it outside of the courtroom. By doing so, you can hang on to your sanity and your hard-earned savings. So I've been practicing matrimonial and family law for over 30 years. And I've become convinced that the majority of divorcing couples can minimize the emotional distress and the financial cost of divorce by choosing to handle it outside of the court system. Nine out of 10 litigated cases end up settling after months or even years in the system. And they usually end up settling along the same terms that were proposed at the very beginning of the case. The reason this happens is because when you go through litigation, your emotions are very heightened and they hijack your ability to make decisions, reasoned decisions, about issues that have long-term consequences. The legal system, which has absolutely no capacity to address your emotional needs, only exasperates this problem. The procedures required by the system serve as gasoline that fuel the fire of your emotions and almost always result in a longer and more expensive divorce process. Very often, people involved in litigated divorce are unwittingly trying to get their emotional needs met in a system that's intended to be transactional. Everyone going through a divorce feels that they were done wrong by their spouse. The system gives no consideration to your feelings, and it doesn't care about your emotional grievances. The emotional and financial cost of trying to use the system in that way can be devastating. Except in very extreme circumstances, marital fault is completely irrelevant to the outcome. You will never get the emotional vindication or get the revenge that you think you deserve from the legal system. What you will get is psychological trauma and a financial depletion that can take years to recover from, if ever. Fear, anger, and grief are all normal feelings that every human being going through a divorce experiences. Litigation is war, and you will inevitably be attacked on the battlefield. When you feel attacked, it becomes impossible to compartmentalize those intense emotions so that you can make sound decisions for your future based in reason and not emotional reactivity. The legal system does one thing one way. You can't tailor it to meet your individual needs. The best thing to do is to just avoid it altogether. Opt out. Keep control of your life where it belongs, with you. So much of your life is going to change, but there are so many ways you can maintain control over the decisions to be made and avoid the financial ruin. So there's three ways to keep your divorce out of the courthouse. 
is mediation, which is the fastest and least expensive process. As a mediator, I don't represent either person. I'm a neutral facilitator. I don't advocate for either of the party's interests, but rather I help them identify the issues that they need to address and to understand the law as it pertains to them. With my guidance, the couple comes up with a plan that works for their family. No one is better qualified to make decisions about how your finances should be handled and your children should be raised than you are. Depending on how complex the issues are, the average mediation takes about three to six months and costs anywhere from five to ten or fifteen thousand dollars. It's a great process for non-complex matters where there's a balance of power between the parties and they are either on the same page or able to get there through productive communication. It's not a good option in cases where there's an imbalance of power, active addiction, untreated mental illness, or domestic violence. The second way to keep your divorce out of the court system is collaborative divorce. That is a process option that is a team approach where both parties do have their own attorneys to advocate for them, but they do so in a cooperative, non-adversarial way. This process uses interest-based negotiation as opposed to position-based negotiation. So what's the difference? Position-based negotiation is used in litigation, and the goal is to have your client's interests prevail, with no consideration being given to the other spouse's interests. It's a win-lose dynamic. The collaborative process employs interest-based negotiation, where the goal is to satisfy the interests of every member of the family to the greatest extent possible. The team has a mental health professional who helps the couple come up with a co-parenting plan that works for them, taking into consideration the needs and the developmental stages of their children. The final member of the team is a certified divorce financial analyst. The team works together using out-of-the-box thinking and creativity to come up with a new financial plan and a new co-parenting plan that meets the needs of the entire family. The solutions are highly tailored to your individual family. This is something you can't get in a courtroom. When a judge decides your case, you get a very cookie-cutter result that, generally speaking, no one's ever happy with. Collaborative is a great process for more complex cases where both parties are committed to complete transparency and cooperation in an effort to ensure the best outcome for every member of the family. The process itself is very streamlined. It's time efficient and cost effective. The average collaborative case is resolved in a third of the time and cost of litigation. There are practitioners who disagree, but in my opinion, like mediation, collaborative divorce is not appropriate. It's not an appropriate process when there's active addiction, untreated mental illness, or domestic violence. The third way to keep your divorce out of the court system is a negotiated settlement. So this is where the majority of settlement is where a majority of litigated cases end up anyway. So why not just start there? You have to remember that the attorney that you have hired works for you, and it's not the other way around. You and your spouse can each work with litigators and make it perfectly clear to them that you don't want to enter the system unless it becomes absolutely necessary, and that you want to negotiate your way to a resolution. If you're thinking about getting a divorce, give me a call. We'll talk it through. I'll help you decide which process is the right one for you and your family. Many people stay in unhappy and unhealthy marriages because they're terrified of the financial and the emotional bloodbath that we so often hear about. It doesn't have to be that way. You owe it to yourself and your family to do your research before you just reflexively spend your kid's college fund on litigators and you get sucked into that black hole of the system. You can reach me at 516-308-2922 or email me at kmcadrlawny.com. We've all heard the horror stories of other people's divorces. Yours doesn't have to be that way. Give me a call and let's talk about it. Knowledge is power. 
You can reach me at 516-308-2922 or email me at kmcadrlawny.com to learn how you can avoid becoming another nightmare divorce statistic. Even in the best of circumstances, going through a divorce is still a very traumatic experience. But when you've been the victim of abuse, whether it's physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional or financial abuse, the trauma is compounded exponentially. And the healing process can be that much more difficult. My guest today is Shari Botwin, a licensed clinical social worker who has been counseling survivors of all types of trauma in her Cherry Hill, New Jersey practice for over 23 years. Welcome, Shari. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us. So Shari has been has given many keynote presentations for multiple organizations and universities and has given expert testimony on breaking stories related to trauma on a variety of international news outlets. In addition to being a published author of two books, Shari has also published feature articles in several online magazines. After living through many years of childhood abuse and trauma in her early adulthood, Shari has dedicated her life's work to helping survivors. Her second book is entitled Thriving After Trauma, Stories of Living and Healing, and it is wonderful. The real stories and practical tools shed light on how to let go of the shame, guilt, anger, and despair after a traumatic experience. Shari, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. This is such a very important topic, and I'm, I'm just thrilled to have you here to talk about it. Oh, I always love coming out and talking about this stuff because it's so important. And thank you again for having me. You are very welcome. So over the past 30 years, I have represented countless women and less frequently men, who have experienced domestic abuse. Can you start by giving us a definition? What is domestic abuse? A lot of times when people think of domestic abuse or domestic violence, they think about when you're in a relationship with somebody and there's some type of physical assault that's occurring. When I think of domestic abuse or domestic violence, I think about living in a partnership where there's emotional, physical, and sexual unsafety between the partners. So I think that the definition is much bigger than what people realize. I I think so too. And and I see that. And oftentimes people who are in that type of a relationship um, aren't recognizing it as abusive. Um, You know, and it's not just the physical, the sexual, and the emotional abuse. It can also be financial abuse, right? Exactly. That was one of the things I was thinking about when we were coming on. I've talked to people who've been in relationships where they are, they feel like prisoners because they're being told that they're not able to spend money or they're being told that the finances between the two of them is not their business. So they're left in a, left in a situation where they're feeling like even though these are two adults, the person in the, that's being abused feels like that little kid who has to ask for permission or who has no control over what is happening with the finances. Yeah, I, I, I see a lot. Control really is the basis of all types of abuse. That seems to be the heart of it. Absolutely. Yeah, it's one party trying to maintain control over someone else, either physically, emotionally, financially, or sexually. And Yeah, and I think there's a lot of secrets around finances. I think when you think about being in a marriage or being in a partnership, both parties need to have access to all types of income, investments that are going on between the two of them. And a lot of times when I talk with people 
who've been in these situations, they don't even know where the money is going. So there's a lot of withholding on top of feeling like they are unaware or can't ask or have to ask for permission to spend money. There's a lot of secrets that are kept and it's often, you're often in a situation where people have talked to me about this, where they get to the point where they're even afraid to ask because if they ask about finances, they're immediately shut down. Yes. Yeah. And you know, I find a lot of times, um, people, usually women, will sit in my office and they'll they'll talk to me with a level of um, shame and embarrassment. Mm-hmm. And they will, be, they will be describing abuse to me, but deny it at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, what role does shame play in keeping people stuck in this cycle of abuse? Because it does seem to be a cycle. Yeah. And, and that, that word, when you talk about shame, I think a lot of times people don't even know what that means. But when somebody's in a relationship where they're feeling unsafe or where they're feeling abused, the shame becomes the, the part of them that starts to, to deny, starts to, or maybe even never doesn't start, but has always believed that the treatment that they're getting is the treatment that they deserve because it's so familiar. So when somebody's in a relationship where they're feeling less than, where they're feeling unworthy or inadequate, and again, a big piece of the shame is it's about saying to oneself, maybe it's not so bad, or maybe I'm the one that causes this. So you're left feeling powerless, you're left feeling hopeless, helpless, and oftentimes in a place of despair, like there's no way out and this is all this is all that I know or this is all that I'm ever going to have. Yeah. So I need to just put up with it. I, I, You know, a lot of times I also see a need to um, see the abuser as something that, that they're not, um, like to idealize the abuser mm-hmm. and see them in a certain light that that is not reflected in reality. Yeah, you know, here's what's really tricky, and I talk to people about this all the time. When you're living with somebody who's abusive, they're not abusive every day, every second of the day. There's many characteristics in abusers that are confusing and don't match the side of them that can be mean or harmful. There can be a very charming side. There can be a very likable loving. Um, You know, we talk about that word grooming a lot. And Mm -hmm. it's not just in the context of child abuse. It's also in the context, I think, in domestic violence, where the abuser finds a way to keep you in the relationship because they often will make excuses or find ways to defend their behavior. Mm -hmm. And then there's this side of them that can be sorry or can be apologetic about whatever occurred the day before, the week before, and the person who's in who's in the role of victim will unfortunately oftentimes get hooked into that cycle and won't realize this is actually part of the abuser pathology. Right. So so they can be abusive in one day and then the next day be very charming mm-hmm. and loving and solicitous. And if you are the abused person, you know, you, you, I guess you, you hold on to that, the good times, the good things, and you want to see your spouse as someone who's good and treats you well. Right. One of the hardest things for people to accept when they come to me and they talk to me about being in these situations is how can somebody that was supposed to love me that much be so hurtful? Yeah. This is a question that people ask me 
over and over again, and it's a question that they are asking themselves when they're living in that situation. Yeah, I think. That, I, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. go ahead. Well, what, what what I try to explain to people is you can have both things happening at the same time when you are living with somebody who you think loves you. They they might think that they love you, and they think that the abuser often will think part of love is causing harm, mm-hmm. because a lot of times abusers come from families where they watched their dad mistreat their mom, or where they were victims of childhood abuse. So these messages that they walk around telling themselves, the abuser, this is something that they often will then tell their you know, their partner, the yeah. victim... Yeah, I see that a lot. I see that a lot. And it's hard to discern what's true and what's not and what's healthy and what's not. We are here with Shari, who was a licensed clinical social worker. I was um, thinking about how many cases I've handled over the years where people who have been in abusive relationships get out and then return to the relationship. I had one particularly... um, I would say devastating uh, case when I was a baby lawyer (laughs) where I I represented a woman who was in an extremely abusive relationship, physical and sexual abuse. And she worked very, very hard to leave that marriage. And she, she got out. She got a job. She lost a tremendous amount of weight. She started dating and she felt really good about herself. So I thought. And about, I don't know, six or eight months after leaving, she went back. Mm-hmm. And I've seen that happen so many times. Can you explain that yeah. that phenomenon? Yeah, it's, it's, it is heartbreaking. I think what happens is if you leave an abusive relationship and you're doing some work on yourself, but you're not really looking at what happened or what made me think that I deserved to stay in that relationship in the first place. Where where do some of these beliefs come from? If you don't look at that stuff, you're more likely to repeat the patterns. And I think what happens too for people is when they leave the relationships, that's when they start to really feel more about the connection. So the part of them that felt connected, that, that felt attached, those feelings don't go away over time unless you're actually dealing with them and you're working through them. So I think that those ingrained beliefs about about feeling like you don't deserve the best or just wanting to go back to the familiar because it just feels safer, unfortunately, these mm-hmm. are things that make people go back. I can say that during this quarantine, there have been a lot of reports of people going back into their relationships with their abusers because of the stress and the isolation due to the COVID crisis. So this is really an issue right now. Yeah, we're we're definitely seeing a lot of that. So so someone can leave this abusive relationship and change some outwardly things like appearance and Mm -hmm. employment and, and start dating. But if they don't do the hard work of looking inward, and figuring out why they were in that relationship to begin with, it's it's difficult to move on to a healthy relationship. It really is. And I think it's wonderful, you know, when somebody can leave and they can do things like become healthier, get a job. Those are wonderful things. But you really do need support. You need positive voices. You need a, you need encouragement. And you need, you need to be educated and 
um, you know, find other people maybe who've been in similar situations so that you can really gain insight. There's so much denial that comes with being in an abusive relationship that in order to really break that cycle, you ha- you need to be able to have more insight and awareness into what, what got you in that relationship in the first place and what what kept you from leaving before you left. And again, not in a critical way, more in just a I want to understand more. I want to learn more about myself and why this happened so I don't do it again. Yeah. You know, before the break, you also had mentioned the fact that um, it, abuse can be cyclical in families, either as the abuser yeah. or as the abused. Can yeah. you talk to us a little bit about th- that dynamic. Why does coming from an abusive family tend to lead to you either being an abuser or a victim of abuse? I think what happens is if you live in an environment as a little one where you're seeing mistreatment, where you're seeing violence, or you're you're the person that's getting the anger taken out onto, I just think that it's all that you know. I think even kids on some level will know that what they're seeing between their parents or what they're tolerate or what they're having to deal with in terms of maybe how their mom or dad treats them. I think there's a part of them, even little ones, that will know something about this feels really not okay. I know something is wrong here, but again, unless you're able to identify what actually was wrong, unless you have people growing up who say to you, you know what your dad did to your mom or what your dad did to you, you know that was not your fault, or do you know that that was not okay? If if you don't have people telling you that, and I don't mean just sort of like in passing, I mean a repetitive statement that somebody is saying to you over and over again, you're much more likely to either be the victim or become the abuser because, again, it's all that you know. Yeah, it's your normal. It's your normal. And and like you said, it's very important to hear because often I will sit with someone who's abused and, and one of the things I will say to them that that seems to really resonate is you are you are modeling for your children what what a relationship between a man and a woman should look like. They are growing up thinking that what they are seeing is normal and right. And unless right. you break that cycle, they are likely um, to follow the same to follow suit and go out into the right. world and and have a relation and repeat the relationship that they grew up with because it's their normal. Yeah, and you know what else? Here's the other thing. If you grow up in a family where you have a dad that's explosive or you have a mom that is narcissistic or critical or has difficulty managing their anger, the other problem is is then then you're not taught. You're not taught how to deal with your feelings. You're not taught how to express your anger appropriately. You're not made to feel okay about feeling disappointed or sad. So that's something I think about all the time as a parent. I try very hard to instill openness in with my with my little guy because I feel like it's so important not only to not repeat the cycle of abuse but to also teach him that it's okay to feel things that are uncomfortable it's okay to be angry it's not okay to do x y and z but it it is okay to do this this and this if if you if this is what you need to get your feelings out so that's another huge problem unless we're being taught this stuff in our homes and in our school environment and with our peers, how in the world are we going to know how to do that as an adult? 
That's very, very true. So mm-hmm. it's not just what happens at home. What is happening at home has to be countered out in the real world by mm-hmm. teachers and friends and other adults in your life. That's very, very true. And unfortunately, many people don't have those other uh, positive outside influences. Yeah, you know what I see? I find that the ones, the patients that I meet through the years that find safe, positive, supportive adult mentors, teachers, coaches, if they find those people outside of their homes when they're growing up in abuse, I see that those people have an easier time getting into relationships as adults where there's not abuse. That makes sense because they they have that influence of of positivity and and healthy healthy attitudes, healthy behavior, healthy ways of expressing anger and hurt and resolving conflict. And they have somebody in their life that's saying to them, you're great just the way you are, or it's okay to be mad, or you know what, what, your dad really shouldn't be doing that stuff to your mom. It's really not okay, and it's not your fault. So if they have people telling them that when they're 8 and 10 and 15 and 20, Mm -hmm. that's going to also make a big difference. Yeah, that that definitely will. So how does, so so let's, someone gets out of, 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 of an abusive relationship. They've suffered a tremendous amount of trauma. How do you begin to recover from that type of trauma? Because there's different types of trauma. Right. So I think, you know, I have different patients flashing through my mind as we're having this conversation. I'm and sure. I think the first, the first step, and it's making me think of a woman I met who was in her late 50s when I met her. I think the first step is really just acknowledging that, yes, I was in an abusive relationship it was not okay when he did this and this and this. I think to be able to really acknowledge and own the truth versus continuing to tell the story with defenses, that's the first step. And I think it doesn't matter how old you are. I think, you know, when I think about different people I've met through the years, I am working with somebody now who's in her mid-20s. And in about three years ago, when she was about 23, she was able to acknowledge and and identify that she was being sexually abused and physically abused by her boyfriend at the time. Mm. Once you're able to do that, and again, it doesn't matter how old you are, you could be 23. I'm thinking about my other patient who was, I think, 58 or 59 and was married to this person for 30 years. It's never too late. And it, it it's always it's always possible to be able to get to a place of acceptance and knowing, knowing the truth no matter where you are in your life, no matter how old you are, it doesn't matter. But I think that that's the first step. And I think once you can do that, then the healing begins. Well, I, I think before you can get, getting to the truth and admitting the truth to yourself requires you to step out from behind the shame. Mm-hmm. And that's, Absolutely. That's very difficult. That's, I think, the hardest part. Yeah. You know what? That's where, and I talked about this in my book, the importance of speaking and the importance of having a witness. This is where support groups and therapy can be very helpful. When I was talking with my patient um, who was in her late 50s, what she did before she was able to really acknowledge that she was being abused, she, she told me different things that had happened. She told me different events, incidents, and I would say back to her, tell me what you think about what you just told me, or tell me what you would say to your best friend if that were her telling you this. And I had her actually, every time she thought about different events that she went through, I had her write it down because I wanted her to write it down so she could look at it sort of as an observer 
and with a little bit of distance. And I would ask her in session, when you read about that incident that you just told me about, when you tell me and when you read it, what do you think about that? How, how, how do you think that left you feeling? And what do you think about it now that you're telling me and you're no longer with this person? That's, that's a wonderful approach. It, it yeah. sounds like it allows the person to examine the situation with some degree of objectivity. Like this is, it, as though it's not their own life. Like this is, this is an incident on a piece of paper. And you know what else? Um, it allows you to begin to grieve for yourself. When she read through some of those things and told me about some of the assaults that she lived through, she would get very sad. And sometimes we would just sit and grieve for yeah. that younger Suzanne, who not only was a, a wife, but also had three kids. And that younger Suzanne, who would be hiding in her basement, trying to protect herself from her abuser, while also trying to protect her three children. It was heartbreaking. But you know what? Those sessions where we could sit and let her grieve for that younger part of her, that's a big piece of what helped her to really overcome and then be in a relationship that was different. I'm sure because that's that's very difficult. I'm always amazed. People have... Um, in their mind, preconceived notions of what the abused person looks like, does, how much money they have. And abuse is found in every stratosphere of society. It doesn't matter how educated you are, how much money you have, how old you are. It doesn't matter. doesn't matter at all. And that's, it's such an important point that you're bringing up because I think there are myths there are misconceptions about what an abuser looks like, mm-hmm. whether physically or what kind of job they have, or if they're smart or if they're if they're in the minority. It, it, I, I think it's so important that you say that because I've met I've met abusers through the years in my work, and they there's no one type. There are different types, different characteristics that abusers will all have in common. But there's really no way to just, when you're walking down the street or when you're first dating somebody, you're not going to know if that person has an abusive background or has anger management issues or is going to become controlling and manipulative. These are things you find out over the course of time. And usually you don't find this stuff out until you're already hooked, Yeah. until you're already you know, sort of attached to the person. And if you come to that relationship with a history of abuse, you may not even recognize it as something not right. right. Like that's not a red flag in your mind. That's normal. It feels normal. And I think with my younger patient who was 23, she grew up in a family where there was so much chaos and drinking and physical violent outbursts that when her boyfriend at the time started sexually assaulting her, it really didn't feel that different to her. She knew on some level, this is definitely not what I want. This is definitely not okay. Mm -hmm. But the way her boyfriend at the time treated her wasn't that different than the way her parents treated her. So it was, she was sort of back in her childhood home, but just Mm -hmm. a different person. And and it's when it's what you know, there's a comfort level there, which sounds odd, but, but that is how it works. And you know, the same thing can be true, can be said for the abused person. There's no set rule on on who is abused. Again, it's every level of ed- education, every level of wealth. It doesn't matter. Every age. I I once represented a psychologist who specialized in helping 
victims of domestic violence, and she was a victim of domestic violence. Yeah, doesn't surprise me at all. And I was absolutely amazed by that. Mm -hmm. She spent her days helping women get out of that Mm -hmm. situation, but couldn't get herself out. Yeah, let me let me just say this to you. What what I what I call that is and it's not a bad thing that that was the the job she was doing. There's this defense mechanism called disconnection or dissociation where you can actually convince yourself when you're working or when you're in school that whatever's going on behind closed doors isn't really happening to you. So you can sit in an office and be completely put together and help she was probably helping her patients and just completely disconnected from the idea that some of the stories her patients were telling her Mm -hmm. were the same stories that she was living through in her own home. That is absolutely fascinating. It's a defense mechanism. It's a defense mechanism. Wow. Something I feel like I could talk about for hours because it's Mm -hmm. something that many people don't understand. And it's so common. It's so when people say things like, why would you put up with that? Or why didn't you tell somebody? Or how could you not know that you were being abused? I want sometimes I actually get a little bit mad because I think to myself, do you like the 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 ability to be able to survive in in these crazy making environments is that we have to dissociate and disconnect. So we have this way in our brain of convincing ourselves that all is well when really all is really not well. And I think she probably was doing that for her job partly because that was her way to get to the place where she could recognize it was happening to her. She was drawn to that career probably subconsciously because it was a way to help her to realize what that, was going on. That is so interesting. It's mm-hmm. it's really a fascinating. So is it possible once you've taken some steps to heal and move on, is it possible to be in a healthy relationship after you leave an abusive relationship? I mean, this is what I love about my work, and this is why I was so excited to come on your show because I want to say that in the 23 years that I've been doing this work, I have seen so many what I call like happy ever after success stories where the patient I was telling you about in her late 50s, after being in therapy for a couple years and being in a support group, she really worked very hard to understand her history. And she ended up meeting this guy that was so different than her her dad growing up and so different than her first husband. And the the process of being able to go from being in a violent or abusive relationship to being in a healthy relationship, not only is it possible, but for some, it's like a dream come true. It's like the best revenge ever to be able to say, you know what, I don't put up with that anymore. And now I know what I now I know how bad it was before. And now I know what it means to be safe. And now I know my worth like to Mm-hmm. Now I know and my now, worth. And you know what? Now I can be present. I don't yes. have to dissociate anymore. That's I wonderful. I can be 100% with you, and I feel safe, and I know that I can tell you if I'm mad. I know I can set boundaries with you. I know that I know what love is versus what I was taught love was. was. I know the difference now. And it's not something I just That's see. wonderful. I see it all the time. Oh, that's so great. Oh, Shari, that's our time for the day. I can't believe how fast it went. Thank you so Uh, much for sharing all this information. I hope you will come back and join us.